The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, welcome everybody. This is Paul Rudy from Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. I'm going to lower my earphone volume here a little bit, guys. Uh, I'm glad to be back from a kind of an extended vacation, and thanks to David for taking over my role in uh, fielding the calls, which, by the way, you got a lot more calls than I normally do. I know. I said I think they were testing me, but yeah, it was an interesting experience. Hey, you even got a call from Stan, (laughs) and so now you've proven yourself. Yep. got a call from Stan. That makes you official, a radio host in Champaign. Stan, I'm not making fun of you. We always enjoy talking to you. Uh, And also here with me today, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, thanks uh, Good to for be joining here. us today. I know you thought you'd be out here on the phone, but here you are, live and in person. Uh, certified financial planner, retirement income certified professional, David Rudy, joins us today as well. David, good morning. Good morning. And certified financial planner, professional, Ryan Repco. You can call in with your questions to 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at com. We also want to welcome those turning in on Facebook Live. It's important to recognize that future that past performance is not an indication of future results. I lost my reading abilities after 30 <laughs> days of vacation. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Well, again, David, thanks for handling that. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years now, since 1990, and uh, I remember... My first time or two hosting it, uh, it's, you know, you're, you're kind of like the producer. You have to talk and keep the show flowing, and you also have to, uh, you know, make sure you're just, you know, comfortable and all that. It's not, it's a little different being the host than it is being one of the guests. For sure. I definitely have a heightened appreciation <laughs> for all the, the radio shows, show hosts here who make yeah. it seem so easy. Fred, this is going to be stock market related, and it really wasn't part of our plan for the show but i read some rather cheery news today and i suppose it's related to economics in some uh, sense but earlier this week the investment company institute released its weekly mutual fund flows for the week ending july 10th and basically what they're what they're monitoring is uh, how what investors are doing with their money what are they buying what are they selling over time every single category of equity mutual funds which are the stock mutual funds had outflows this week and also noticed that uh, mentioned the bond funds have been the complete opposite story this is what i thought was fascinating fred on a cumulative basis 1.2 trillion dollars has left the equity mutual funds category which again think about as people bailing out of the stock market since january of 2007 and again bond funds have kind of the complete opposite that's kind of where the money's going and it said the bottom line is equity Fund flows have been very large over the past year. More than $320 billion has flowed out of equity uh, mutual funds over the past year, more than any other 52-week period in the history of the data. And it goes back quite a ways. And even at the height of the crisis, investors were pulling substantially less less from funds. And they were that, well, yeah. presumably they meant stock mutual funds. I've said a number of times in my newsletter and probably on this show that, uh, again, I, I noticed you guys all like to make fun of me when I was gone about my market timing abilities, and it's not really forecasting or market timing, but it's my big picture view after 35 years, and I still think we're in the early innings of a secular bull market, and to me, seeing this news here, that this, and I've said this to a number of clients and probably in my most recent newsletter, this is not how great bull markets end when right. people treat every little uh, negative uh two or three or four day event as an existential threat to the yeah. stock market and their wealth. Yeah, there's a, there's a more benign explanation though too, that uh, to a certain extent, some people may be rebalancing. Uh, again, it, this doesn't count the uh, capital appreciation in the accounts. All, right. all, and so it may well be that uh, people are moving some of their gains from uh, equity into bonds, which is a reasonable thing to do if it's done with a plan and, and on a, on a balanced basis, this probably goes beyond. It goes way beyond that because you figured that would would have been true in 2007, 2008, 2009. And and in fact, you would expect the opposite. And yet you still had net 
outflows. Right. But there is no question that with when after a ten year great bull market, uh, some of that is going to be due to rebalancing yeah, effect, far, for more, sure, more than that, right. which is going to look like sales. I hadn't really thought of that, Fred. Thanks for uh, you know. That's but why we have it. Fred. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we have Fred. But that's a good point. But I, I to me, I read this as. Uh, it's almost kind of like seasonally adjusted, adjusted right. for all those factors. It appears to me that, that w- it, you know, I, I, always, I have the statement, I was, we're always fighting the last war, and we seem to really still be fighting the last war of the financial crisis. And I, evidently, and it's, it strikes me, I don't know about after the, the 20s and the 30s, I suspect, it was, I suspect it was true, and I think I've read that it's true that investor behavior they become people become scarred after right. that. And I think after the late early seventies, mid seventies, and even the late seventies, um, I think investors were scarred after that fifty percent decline in nineteen seventy three seventy four. And I'm reminded of that famous the death of equities Newsweek uh, front page in nineteen seventy nine. Basically, it was kind of I think a manifestation of people were scarred at. You know, right. a 15 or 16 year period where the market went nowhere with lots of sheer terror in between. Yeah, and this the other thing uh, in this particular expansion, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, people betting on particular areas like the the, the tech boom and the, and the uh, you know 2000 in the 1990s and so on. So I mean, you don't see people saying, "Well, I, I, I'm investing 100 percent in whatever." Right. <laughs> you know, we're <clears throat> we're not going to. Uh, get out of our diversified portfolio and put our money uh, in three companies that are run by 18-year-old boys that are billionaires for a day that have never been in a room with a woman without that wasn't their mother. Uh, you, you know, and that's what we saw in the late 90s, literally. It was, it's, I mean, the people might even think, well, that's kind of a silly way to view the late 90s. That's what was going on. Yeah. That literally what was going on. And I think it takes, uh, it appears to me, just from my history, you know, the historical attributes of the stock market and really taking a deep dive back look that seems like every 15 or 20 years we get some sort of financial dementia as investors. And we forget, ultimately, we forget about the, the, the lost decade and some of these things. And when you look around the globe, and, and you're right, it's, we're certainly not in that. In, in fact, the data I just laid out suggests that not only are not only are we not in irrationally exuberant period like we were in the late nineties where people would just put their money in two or three tech stocks and everybody was going to get rich uh, but it does but if I look at the last ten years, there are some striking similarities to me um first of all, what has been the best asset class of the last ten years the largest u s growth companies well that was now, it's not to the same magnitude it was in the late 90s, the mid to late 90s. Uh, but suddenly, global diversification looks like, well, that's been a disappointment. Uh, anything other than basically the largest U.S. growth stocks uh, has, has caused your returns to be detracted, not added to. So I'm, I'm, I'm sensing a little bit of this and a little bit of people suddenly starting to wonder, should I be diversified? That that's right. the part I'm feeling again, not as near as strongly as it was when I was fighting for my life yeah. on this radio show, being ridiculed by telling people to stay globally diversified, stay diversified in small companies, mm-hmm. include those, include value companies, all these. You know, it didn't look so smart at the time, but it was the difference between life or death financially over that lost decade. Right. And so I don't know if you guys are noticing any of that, but I'm starting to see it creep in. A question or two by clients suddenly about performance, um, and that's probably just the recognition that a globally diversified portfolio. I mean, what financial advisor would get on the radio and <laughs> say, "Hey, we're in globally diversified portfolios, yeah. and they haven't done as well as the broad U.S. stock market"? But, now, David, that's just reality. Uh, uh, David, uh, you you're even more into the uh, international, aren't you? Yeah, in my personal portfolio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what I was talking about before the show because. I'm very heavily tilted towards uh, small cap value stocks, which you know all the research suggests over really long periods of time they have higher expected returns. I have a good dose of emerging markets in there, um, and both of those things have done horrible for the last you know several years relative to the S and P 500. But it's like I that, that really doesn't bother me, and I knew that that was a possibility going into it. And I think that's the key is 
I was talking about this right before the show. Anytime you own something other than the S&P 500, your performance will differ from the S&P 500, and sometimes for the worse. Sometimes you're going to go extended periods of time where your portfolio does worse, even if it's something that maybe makes more sense than having a more concentrated, large-cap-only U.S. portfolio. Right, and I uh, just I sent you guys an article. I think it was Mel Faber wrote it. Um, I'll try to give him the proper citing next show. But it was fascinating. He he did a deep dive historically. Looked at the last twelve decades, and his point was um, if you just focused on your own country and how investors tend to uh, favor their own country, uh, many countries much more than we do in the U.S. The U.S. is about fifty-five percent of the global market cap. Um, and David, you kind of—I think you believe this—that people probably ought to have a portfolio that's more uh, equal weighted around the globe. And we tend to be thirty percent international full time, but you can make a good justification argument for it. maybe it should be fifty-fifty between the U.S. and other parts of the globe. But he was showing that almost all of the U.S. Uh, favorable returns above international returns over the last four or five decades were because of the last decade. But he tried to do, basically say that generally hasn't been a good idea to concentrate all of your money in one country, not even your own. And he showed that eight out of 12 decades, um, the globally balanced or market-weighted portfolio had done quite a bit better than just the large U.S. companies. And, uh, and he also went on, Fred, to mention that. Plus, it's not a good idea sometimes for practical reasons. Just look at the German market and the Russian market yeah, in the you, 20s uh, and 30s and 40s. The United States is unusual because of the stability. But uh, if you throw in a couple of zeros with Argentina or uh, where it goes all the way from wherever it is to, right. to nothing or Germany right. or Russia, that, that uh, the compounding interest uh, doesn't work very well. Well, well, look at the Japanese market. It's certainly a major economy. And if you invested back in 1989, the the Nikkei index was at 40,000. I think today, uh, some 30 years later, it's still below around 25,000. So for the Japanese investor, it would have seemed uh, natural to invest all or most of your money in the Japanese market only. Probably somewhat of a disaster from a retirement planning standpoint. If they'd just been 50% U.S., uh, based, they had they would have had a completely different uh, experience, and that's hard to fathom that when you're a U.S. citizen, um, thinking that well, it's conceivable that the it, with, with the Dow Jones being around twenty seven thousand now, that twenty or thirty years from now maybe it could be lower. Unlikely, but it's a possibility. Well, and I think the nature of holding a diversified portfolio is at all times, you're going to own something that you're kind of disappointed in, and you're going to own some of the thing that's doing really well. And at those times, you're going to wish you didn't invest in the things that aren't doing well and wish you put all your money in the thing that is doing well. But that's hindsight. You, you don't know in advance what, how that's going to work out in the future. And that's kind of the point is what you don't want is to put all your eggs in one basket. And I think a lot of times, just because we deal with retirees, that's kind of where my mind goes. You know, if you were if you retired right in the beginning of you know 2000, so right. you're going into the lost decade, you put all your money in the S and P 500. That was a really really terrible start to retirement. You went 10 years with a negative growth of wealth. Right. Um, versus if you had an international portfolio, it still wasn't a great decade, but you had positive returns. A globally diversified portfolio w- w- certainly wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't be very far off at all if I said a globally diversified stock portfolio would have been up 60 or 70% during a period where the Standard & Poor's 500 index had a negative 10% total return. Right, and that can be the difference between, and I haven't run the numbers on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if you did go back and look at you know, maybe if you started with $40,000 of portfolio withdrawals. On a million. You, on a million. I'm just pulling even just right. a random number. You, If you were all S&P 500, you probably would have had to cut your portfolio. Oh, no question about it. I, I've, done those, I've done those experiments over and over again. I've done historical audits. And that would have been a particularly brutal period. You would have had to be very flexible. You would have had to cut your, you know, so if you were planning on spending that forty or 50000 you would have had significant cuts. And even today, you know, uh, you'd, you know, your plan probably would have now been in much better shape, but that would have been a pretty tough decade versus 
even a disappointing 60 or 70% total return, and think of that as six or so or 7% uh, annualized return, that's a completely different experience from a retirement planning scenario. When we talk about the sequence of returns risk, that's what we're talking about if you, if you just looked at one asset class, which a lot of people focus on, and uh, that just probably would have had a really tough time, whereas the globally diversified strategy really paid off. We do have a text from Mike. Mike says, and Mike in Champagne, I've been reading a lot about angel investing. According to what I read and listen to, angel investing pays out 10,000 times the average return of the stock market. I was told I'm wasting my money investing in a 401k. What do you know about angel investing, Mike in Champagne? I don't know about angel investing, but whoever told you you're wasting your time <laughs> in uh, passing money in the stock market is no angel. I can say that for sure. I mean, so we kind of have these two really strange concepts in one sentence i should be i was told essentially i'm i should be angel investing and investing in all these startup companies and i should not invest in a 401k plan i mean i've heard a lot of really bad advice over 35 years i'd probably have to put that on the top five list (laughs) well yeah and and this is something we talk about a lot in the office people always turn things into either or decisions when they don't have to be it's like look the way i would look at it if I was advising a client and they were interested in venture capital or angel investing, I'd say you still want to put your serious money into your 401k and things you know is you know a diversified, low-cost portfolio. If you want to take a small portion of your investment assets and try angel investing or investing in venture capital, you know, knock yourself out. Just don't do it with any money you can't afford to. I I to always lose. tell people. I think visualizations always help. If you want to be an angel investor or your own venture capital invest investor, right? Whatever money you're thinking about doing that, think about driving between here and St. Louis, and every mile throw a hundred dollar bill out the window. And if that doesn't bother you, put as many of those hundred dollar bills in that investment as you want. Well, and I, I think the key is it's just the range of outcomes is really really wide. Yeah, well, you, you have plan, you right? have the chance of of investing in a company that does really well, and in that case, yeah, you will have much higher returns than just the stock market average, but you also have the chance of investing your money in a company that goes nowhere and you lose 100% of your investment. There's something called deal flow, too, that uh, I suspect that the person that wrote in and all of us here don't have uh, deal flows. We don't have the best uh, private equity people coming to us. No. (laughs) So if we wanted to play that game, uh, we're almost, we're not going to get the Amazons or the uh, uh, and, in the old days, Microsoft or whatever, we're going to get the real dogs. And so even if even if you're a, a player, uh, which means you're a a, a billion dollar you know fund that has you know yeah. And, pretty- and, and the case of Warren Buffett is not exactly in this case, but uh, we, we talked about the bet uh, very often that he bet a uh, hedge fund person that Ted sides that, that the uh, uh, I don't know, Standard Poor's or whatever right, would beat uh, almost all the hedge funds they did which is true, but they also beat Warren Buffett. Yes, they did. <laughs> now, as I recall, I don't think it's even a, a lock that private equity, uh, for example, uh, has a higher expected return than the S&P 500 has done all that much better. No, it's not. So I, I think it depends what you compare it to as well. So yeah, I think if you compare it to the S&P 500, which is large companies that are growth oriented for the most part, uh, it has had a higher expected return, but if you compare it to small cap value companies, which those are kind of the types of companies that end up getting bought by private equity firms anyways, I think if you look at the research, and, and uh, there's a guy named Larry Swedro. He wrote a great book called The Only Guide You'll Need to Alternative Investments, and he talks about uh, venture capital and private equity in there. So if you want more information, I, that's a, great, that's book, a, a great book to check out, and that's where I'm getting some of this information. But my takeaway, and I don't remember the exact numbers, was private equity has similar expected returns to small cap value stocks, but you have less liquidity. There's that's there's always that liquidity issue, and the range of outcomes is almost even a little bit wider than just buying a small cap value mutual fund. Yeah, someone said and, that if you can't be in the top tier, the top uh, quartile or quintile with private equity, you don't want to play. And the and everyone seems well. I'm going to choose the private equity sure. people who are in the top uh, whatever, but that's not uh, easily done. And that oh. trickles down to even mutual fund yeah. investors say the same thing, right? Well, I'll pick the good ones yeah. uh, if only it was that easy. Here's what I'm trying to dis- understand, Fred, at all times. Uh, I just wrote a new ad that will run on WDWS, I think. 
And basically, I go back to the 30 years I've been doing this show. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and I looked to see, well, where was the Standard & Poor's 500 index in the year that I started the show, which was 1990? And I defaulted to the beginning of the year. Uh, and where is it today, et cetera. And I'm trying to think of who would want an alternative to this. Over the last 30 years since I've been doing this show, the Standard & Poor's 500 index has increased by a factor of eight and a half times. It's eight and a half times higher than it was 30 years ago. The dividends, the dividend income stream is five times higher. Meanwhile, the cost of living has doubled. And I calculated that, now keep in mind, you can't buy, so here's my regulatory part, you can't buy an index, but you can buy an index fund. I'm not trying to make any quantum leaps here, so I'm not suggesting that these numbers are exact. This is for educational. But if you were able to buy the Standard & Poor's 500 index like it was a mutual fund at the beginning of 1990, today your interest, your dividend income would be 16% or would be north of 16% on your original investment. Why is it, Fred, or you guys, why is it that over and over and over again people continue to look for alternatives to that but uh, people are, are selling him on the the hope that we'll be able to do it and this is not just amateurs uh i think i i talked about last time that uh almost all pension funds uh if, if you go back 20 or uh, 10 20 or 30 years would have done better uh, uh 60 in, in index uh, equities and 40 in uh bonds and they've done even Fantastically well, they've done seventy thirty, but they've done all kinds of you know, real estate, uh, uh, direct lending, sure. uh, hedge funds, uh, private equity, so on. Again, that's not to say there'll be the maybe in the future the world will change, but it's not clear that it's going to. Yeah, I just find that fascinating. Um, you know why people keep looking? They, they, I guess it's because when I talk about that thirty years, I'll get to you in a second and. Uh, you know, well, it didn't come easily. You had to escape the dot com crash yeah. and not buy into that, which was very compelling at the time. I mean, you were you were made to look foolish if you were suggesting that people should stay diversified in their investments. And then, of course, you had to ride through patiently, which is not so easy during seven bear markets, which are declines of twenty percent or more. Two of them being the second and fourth worst ever, fifty percent off plus. Uh, so we can talk about, I guess, the stock market being an eight and a half times higher and dividend income stream now 16% on your original investment. But you, it took a, it would test anybody's metal, and most people can't do it. Yeah, most very few few people uh, actually do that. So passive investment is only half the story. Uh, you know, passive saves you a, a ton of uh, of expenses, but if you come and go at the wrong time, uh, you lose a lot of that. Okay, so it, we have an email. Uh, it doesn't say from whom. I, it says, good morning. I am 60 years old and have $50,000 in an IRA and $17,000 in a retirement annuity. I would like to roll these over into something that has a 7 to 9% annual gains or more. Can I do this and avoid taxes and or penalties? Thanks very much. I appreciate your service with this program. Okay, well, there's a couple of questions embedded in there. Can, first, let's take the easy one. Can I roll it over into something and not pay taxes? You guys want to weigh in on that? Yeah, sure. I think you said his 50000 is an IRA, correct? Correct. Yep. So within the IRA, you don't even have to roll it. Oh, that's it. right. It's already in the IRA. Yeah. Maybe it's the retirement annuity. Okay. Well, uh, and that's probably capable of being rolled into a qualified maybe IRA, something yeah. like that. No, there might be like early surrender charge penalties. Right. If, just depending on when he bought the annuity but in and other words, how it's structured. He doesn't have to worry about taxation, I don't mm. think. Okay. You could you could change your investment selection within the IRA with as long as you're not selling out of it and distributing the money and invest in something that targets for that type of a return okay. without a tax consequence. The second part, I would like to roll these over. And I think this is a very common question and a very mm. common thinking, right? And it's really it sounds like an easy question, but I'm not so sure the answer is always it depends, right? Uh, can I roll these over in something that has a 7 to 9% annual gains or more? Now, keep in mind that this is a probably a question that 80% of the people might ask us on any given day. And I, I've gotten phone calls on our office phone with people asking almost the exact same thing. And my answer is always, well, there are investments out there that have an expected long-term average return in that range, but it's not going to be every single year. Far from it. There's going to be years where you, where your portfolio balance declines substantially. Anything that has that type of expected return 
is going to have a lot of years where the return is negative. And so I think the key is to know that I don't think there's anything out there where you can guarantee a 7 or 9% return year after year after year. It's like, yeah, you can have a portfolio with that expected return over a lot of years, but even over a long period of time, you're not sure exactly where your return's going to end up. And even if you do a fixed income, there's a default risk, which is similar. I think yep. We got a call, I don't know, probably a couple of years ago about someone saying, well, a church is selling bonds for church bonds, nine percent or seven percent or something. <clears throat> their, their bonds are supposed to pay that much, and that's fine as long as the church yeah. uh, generates it's, it's money. as good as the church. Yeah. What I was going to say, if someone's looking for a stable return where they want it year in year out, the only thing that really can do that is fixed income and, and other other words, bonds. And you're not going to get seven to nine percent in bonds. Uh, you're going to get probably around three percent or maybe a little higher, depending on the type of bond and the quality of the bond that you buy. Uh, but the problem with that is, as we talk about time and time again, after taxes and inflation, that nets out to maybe one or, or no no returns. You just tread water. Uh, so there really isn't a way to guarantee a return that high with with equity. And well, I would even not go, in today's environment. But, and, I, and, I, and I tend to think the question under that question, and I don't want to speak for this person, but many times when when they call us and they ask this question, the question under the question is, can I get a stable 7 to 9%? Yes. Yep, exactly. And the answer to that is no. Well, if the person already has an annuity, and, and presumably it's less than that, the answer is probably no. And again, it's kind of piling on, but uh, there's a question about having an annuity and a an IRA account. Uh, to be uh, true. I mean, if it's a retirement annuity, it can stand as itself if you're going to keep it in that retirement annuity. And many times that's the, particularly if it's like a University of Illinois, I yeah. mean, I wouldn't convince anybody or try to convince anybody to move that into an IRA. But even a, even a bad investment, though, may something you'd never do again, or uh, right. you may not necessarily want to terminate it. Now, you these guys don't remember, Fred, but there was it was not unusual. I mean, we've had a lot of periods in time when you could get seven to nine percent in a certif- certificate of deposit, right? And a, bl- a brief period when you could get almost double that. But right. uh, you know, uh, the first half of my career, maybe the first two thirds of it, seven to nine percent CD was not unusual. It wasn't unheard of. It was it was fairly you're common. Talking about- maybe 5%, 6% inflation. Of course. And you're paying tax on the inflationary portion of the... Of Great the, point. And so while we dream about a 7 or a 8 or a 9%, or even these days a dream CD would probably be 5%, if you have a 5% CD, you probably have built in 3% or so inflation. Now, you also have to pay tax on that 5%, so let's lop off one and say you get four after tax. Now you, Now the invisible robber, so the tax is the visible robber, takes one percent i'm just i'm just being casual here and so now we have four we think well that's pretty good four percent cd is pretty good well you know it costs three percent just to live the next year more so you're really netting out one percent real return so even though be careful if we had seven to nine percent cds today would not really be any more of a bargain than a two or two and a half percent CD is today relative to inflation. Yep. There might be some difference. Yeah, I mean the caller's issue is just a kind of fact of life that uh, there, there's no certainty at uh, right seven percent. Uh, so the only, only way you can achieve that is to take a degree of risk. Yeah, you might you uh, may, be or may not want to do. For instance, uh, yeah, a global portfolio of sixty percent stocks diversified around the globe and 40% high quality fixed income. Certainly has an expected return in that area. But I would say uh, periodically, you better be prepared to see that money, uh, that your portfolio balance decline by 10 to 15%. And if we get into something like 2008, 2009, even that portfolio lopped off more than a third of its value temporarily. It just never feels temporary when it's happening. So there's no free lunches out there. Um, we wish we could design a uh, real return of seven to nine percent that was geared and get real return meaning net of inflation and that's the only return that's important. So I'm sorry there yes and so the answer is the question is you you don't have to really worry about taxation as long as you follow the rules and yes uh, there are plenty of people that can design including yourself a portfolio strategy with that expected return but it's going to have uh somewhat significant fluctuation uh, and whether that's tolerable by you as the investor only you can decide is that well, not fair guys i think if someone comes to you and try tries to convince you that they have a product that will deliver that guaranteed seven to nine percent you should be very very skeptical 
And, you know, over the years I've seen those. Um, usually they're garbage. Uh, not always. I mean, back when CDs were six or seven or eight, you could buy a fixed income annuity, deferred annuity for seven or eight or nine. That was a square deal. Right. Uh, but all. But what's going on today and has been going on for at least 10 years, if not during my whole career, but certainly in the epic low interest rates, historically low interest rates, uh, people crave a higher yield or interest rate or guaranteed return. And there's a plenty of folks out there that will create shenanigan type investments uh, that promise those things. But you have to follow your gut feeling. And it's certainly worth a second opinion at all times if somebody's pitching. The one thing I think of right now that I continue to see way overcooked are these fixed income annuities where basically the agent or the salesperson uh, tells the person you can have the returns of stocks without the risk. And of course, that's just Well, and I guess even just being a little bit nicer to the insurance agent, they might not even be saying that. They might be saying a more nuanced, slightly more true version of that. But that's what the client hears. That's what the client hears, in all fairness. But I think you have to go out of your way and say, now, look, here's the reality of this product. I haven't seen that promoted yet. A realistic expectation outlook for a fixed income annuity by any salesperson ever. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I've never seen it. They really confuse people, too, because I had someone stop in. Um, just for kind of a consultation. And, you know, he mentioned on the phone, well, I have something in this Roth IRA. It gives me 10%. I'm right. This thing off the top of my head, okay, well, that, that sounds too good to be true, so it probably is. But, hey, bring in your documents, and we'll go over everything. Well, it was an equity index annuity with an annual cap of 10%. Right. It doesn't mean that's what you're going to get. It means that's where you get capped out. So if, the you know, whatever the index it was tracking and crediting based on, if it earned 20% that year, you'd get 10. So it was more of a limiting factor, not like this return you're yeah. going to get. But if people don't, they're, they're just very kind of convoluted investment products. In Designed to be. Uh, you, and, know, I, you know, I'm, they do I'm very cynical on this. You're, you know. you're starting at a hole, though, because you're probably paying 5% it's, to look, get a game it, or, or more. So it, to me, it's, you have to w- win back what you pay for the, uh, the fees plus... To me, it's a, you know, uh, look, people distrust financial people. They distrust Wall Street. It's all for good reason. I'm cynical on this. Uh, Wall Street and its minions are happy to create complete crap packages that are that are basically harmful to people and market them as though they're something that people need. I think very most variable annuities that I see qualify for that. Uh, all fixed or what they used to be called equity index annuities qualify for that. I think if anybody offers you a variable annuity, that's a retail annuity. And so if they said, hey, uh, go buy Vanguard's, I'd probably give them a pass. But outside of that, I'm talking about the ones that are sold. Variable annuities or fixed income annuities, fixed, you know, fixed indexed annuities. Okay. These are the ones that are linked to the stock market. You know, you have a ringer on your hand and they disqualify themselves. That's just grouchy old. It's after 30 days of vacation, and I'm still grouchy about this stuff. <laughs> well, and, and I'm glad you took that vacation. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just like to always say, you know, give things a common sense check. If it sounds too good to be true in the financial industry, it probably is. I want to go to the next, uh, because it's so important, uh, the next section. Before I do that, you're listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show on WDWS. I'm here with Dr. Fred Gertz and certified financial planner professionals. Ryan Repko and David Rudy with Rudy Wealth Management. You can call in with your questions at 356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. So online scams is one of the things you guys and you guys have been writing about this. Um, we're seeing more and more of it, Fred. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a pretty wide swath, and they seem to really uh, be geared towards people in the retirement age and above so we're gonna we see them a lot and what i have found that these scammers are so good is why it works these are and i think one of you guys wrote somewhere hey that's their full-time job i mean you you're good at anything if you do anything long enough full-time and i'd like to say that uh and i've known people that have fallen for them and I've, i'm quick to say look uh if you've fallen for one it's not your fault and you might say well yes it is it's no this is a human nature thing where these people are very good at milling through and sifting through people in their emotional states of time, and they're just that talented. 
the sad news is once you've done something, we're going to get into some of them here briefly. Is typically the it's too late. The money's gone. Once that once that money is sent to somebody or paid to somebody, that money's gone. Ryan, uh, why don't you start us out on the first one because you had a fresh one, I think, just yeah. recently. We had a few. Sadly, it's just we would intervene, but it's like this is such a common thing that your email is just the the front lines of battle for so many of these scams. And what I think we try to warn our clients too, and anybody who's listening, is that. Basically, be highly, highly skeptical of any email coming into your inbox that you don't know the sender. And even sometimes the sender can be compromised and, and they can, in fact, be uh, hacked. And a hacker or a scammer can send an email on behalf of someone you think is your friend or a family member and turns out to be someone who's who's trying to take something from you or earn your trust in a false pretense. Well, how come last Friday when I sent you that email that said, <laughs> quick, do a quick task for me, you didn't do it? You, were you just being uh, belligerent? I think best policy is to, to give your father-in-law a pause and you don't always listen to him, you know? Try so to tell people about that most recent one you had. So uh, just just as you said, I had an email come through. It, it uh, on its face looked like it came from you. It said, Paul Rudy, it had the outlook. Um, logoing that said PR for your initials. So it looked 100% authentic, but a quick look uh, at the email address quickly showed that it was not your email coming to me. It was a is a person's name with the fake email attached to it. So you always have to check the email. Don't just do a quick glance. Yeah. And the problem with this is they're targeting someone who might quickly look at their phone and gets email by phone rather than their computer. Because when I looked at the same email by phone, there was almost no indication without looking even further into the email that it came from anyone other than you. Because I could have easily looked at my phone, hit reply, and said, sure, what do you need, if I hadn't been diligent and aware of these kinds of things. And what are they looking for when they send that? They're, is they're, it ransomware? They could that, be looking for any number of things. I, they could be looking to, to try to to get some money from you. They could be saying, hey, I need money for this. and this kind of Send me a quick $10,000 or... Right. This could be a client asking for it. Or for you, it could be, hey, I need you to move some money from this account to the next. It's called a CEO attack or CEO scam, being that you're the CEO of our company. And they obtain your email some way online, and then they try to pose as yourself. And uh, in this case, thankfully, it wasn't uh, one that we fell for. And you just always have to be skeptical. Well, and then when it comes to ransomware, and that seems to be the one we see most advertising for and, and see most articles about, uh, the city of Atlanta was hobbled by a ransomware attack in 2018. And it wound up costing this, it wound up costing the uh, city more than $2.6 million to recover. But we've seen them just in the smaller versions of this, yeah. the one-on-one -on -one individuals. You had one not too long ago. Yeah, yeah we did just about, a, I'd say, Two weeks ago, maybe, um, a client called me and said, I've been hacked on my computer and I'm going to need, you know, several thousands of right. dollars to, to pay the, and I say, quote, quote, unquote, uh, tech people to help me fix this issue. Well, this was all intermingled in with the scam is that the people who had taken over this person's computer were also posing as the folks that could help him free up the computer and for several thousand dollars. They could fix it and everything would be fine. It's just a, a scam to extort money. Uh, but as as someone who has been trained to look for these things, I was able to ask about this little more and drill into it and realize that this was almost certainly like 99.999% a scam. Uh, we were able to stop this kind of further money movement and lockdown accounts and make sure that we took those kind of steps. And we've spent uh, quite a bit of money and resources to, to prepare ourselves and fight against these and turn to recognize them. So there's, there's firms that actually try to help companies uh, be on guard for these. We, we've we've enrolled in some of them. Do you think those have been worth it? Have those helped you guys, do you think? Yeah, I think it just helps you maintain a healthy skepticism. And I think the practical takeaway for or practical advice for managing an email inbox is like Ryan said, anytime you get an email that you weren't expecting or if it seems kind of suspicious, like they're asking you to take immediate action or open some file and you're not 100% sure why that person sent it to you, is don't click on it. And that's that was kind of the premise of this, that one of their big takeaways is just maintain that healthy skepticism and don't, like just take a second to look closely and think about things before you click anything a in lot, the email. And a lot of times, uh, you know, beyond ransomware, then it kind of gets into relationship-driven uh, 
uh, situations where people are trying to establish relationships with people online and then they gain their trust and confidence and now they're all of a sudden they're asking them to send them money or invest in this or that you you guys what's your take on that i think that's the scariest one of all because it's no longer just posing as someone else but rather kind of playing the long game saying i'm going to invest myself and my time as this scammer into a relationship over the computer possibly even by like a a video chat Um, and so you actually build real feelings with the person and you feel that you've as the the person who may be a client who might potentially be scammed you feel like you know this person you feel like you have a legitimate relationship like you would with a family member or friend and that's when it's dangerous and i don't know if dave want to talk about you know some of the things we've seen with you know this example of a scam where someone tries to develop this type of relationship and um how it can impact you and your mental capacity about spending or giving out money yeah i mean it's kind of sad but one of the biggest targets are widows and widowers um who are on online dating sites and then people will basically convince them that they're you know someone who's a legitimate participant in the online dating site and basically kind of like establish a relationship with you and then eventually some way or another convince you to give them money whether it's for like an investment or to help them out because they're in financial need or whatever and they really do they prey on people when they're in their absolute weakest state after the death of a loved one and ryan i know you spent some time investigating you know some of these issues with schwab we use charles Mm -hmm. schwab as a custodian for all of our client assets or 99.9 probably percent um what was your takeaway from some of those conversations because they deal with this on an everyday basis yes what was interesting to learn is schwab has a person whose full-time job is to assist firms like ourselves registered investor advisors with clients who have uh either been Uh, a victim of a scam or could be in the process of it and they told me this person said that the scams don't end at trying to get money from maybe a client's account they'll actually go a step further if if the door to to money from an account is closed they'll try to open up another door and say well how about how about you send me some money um through a, a uh like a credit card expense so you say here pull out cash from the credit card or even worse take out a mortgage on your home or a home equity line of credit. Um, so they're they're not going to stop once or twice. They're going to pull every single option that they can. And a lot of times, like I think David said, is they may even say it on the in the context that they're going to pay this money back because, again, they've built this relationship, this fake relationship, but a relationship. And so the, the person who's being scammed feels like they're just being a good person by helping someone out in a time of need. And I think, Dr. Fred, you're... Were you trying to mention something? Well, this is a different kind of uh, scam, or if you, maybe not a scam, but at least a deceptive practice. Uh, I get emails occasionally, uh, and they'll have a, a big Parkland logo or University of Illinois logo saying investment seminar being held certain place. It turns out that someone is able to acquire a room at Parkland or at the U of I. The U of I has nothing to do with it, or Parkland has nothing to do with it aside from somehow – uh, having a room open and it suddenly becomes a U of I seminar or a Parkland seminar and it's not and it's against the rules but the the two uh, institutions don't enforce them very very adequately Didn't so you have to be careful like that happened with SIRS well SIRS is different it's not SIRS has a different kind of thing you get a uh, well what I mean uh, you're, someone you're, was uh, like right. putting uh, something. you get uh, your, your retirement's under attack and they have a SERS logo there okay. saying, and this is a way to deal with it, or we can help you Got with it. your retirement benefits, that kind of thing. So, again, uh, SERS is more uh, more diligent about uh, stopping that, I think, than uh, U of I and Parkland is. But it's still a pr- – so you have to make sure that they're not just using the name as a, as a come on. So you're saying maybe I should get a room at Harvard, and then <laughs> yeah. I, I really go to the top. <laughs> and then what about the – Here's one I've seen, guys, and, and this is one to really be on guard for because this is really common, and this is one that seems to work pretty effectively. It's the a family member, typically a grandchild, who's in trouble, and they call grandma and grandpa. Yeah, so this one actually happened to uh, my wife's grandfather. Someone called and posed as my wife and said they were in uh, trouble with the police, and it was because they, they, they found drugs in her car was the story, and they needed him to post bail. But the way that um, to post bail was to buy uh, a bunch of iTunes gift cards. And so 
that was kind of the tip off and unfortunately he didn't get caught in that but it's just amazing how how bold some of these strategies are and that there is a, a lesson there that a lot of times these scammers want their compensation in some weird format like cryptocurrency itunes gift cards um or or i guess some of them are direct wires which right but but yeah, that's an immediate red flag. Yeah, <laughs> so. I've I've had several clients come into my office saying, "You got to help me. My grandson's in trouble, yeah. and you know." And I'll say, well, "Let's get him on the line," and then I intervene, and it's, it's yeah. click real fast. There's kind of an economic theory about uh, how these outlandish things work. I mean, you get a email from a Nigerian prince who right. has a million dollars he wants to liberate from Nigeria, and you can tell in a tenth of a second it's. Uh, totally crazy so the question is why do you do that well the answer is the people that respond to that don't know what's going on exactly. so, so they make it outlandish to start off with and it screens out the reasonable people and, ah. the, and the unreasonable people then respond and it shows that they're uh, open for this kind of fraud so the Dunning-Kruger effect you have to be <laughs> competent to know you're incompetent well and I think they're just playing the game of numbers they sure. send out millions yeah. and millions of these emails and it's like okay if we get 0.01% right. of people to respond it can be big dollars can be big but money. they know that the 0.1% or 0.01% are Highly gullible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they they yeah. probably get them through a filter, and they eventually go, yeah. okay, once they get through this level of filter, we're going to get some money. So I was thinking we could go into some just practical yeah. advice. Yeah. please do. Um, so first and foremost, like I said, have a healthy skepticism when it comes to really anything, but especially your email inbox. And if you're not sure, like even if you have a shadow of a doubt, pick up your phone and call the person directly and say, hey, did you send me this email, and is this legitimate, and find out. And on that note, don't send them an email. Don't right. like reply to the email because their email could be compromised. If they provide a phone number in the email to call, don't call that number. Look it up separately online and call, you know, if it's one of those, like you'll get some that pretend to be Amazon.com or something. Don't call the number <laughs> for Amazon's, you know, support or service in the email. Look it up separately. Go and to the Amazon and site, verify. get their true 800 number and explain what's going on. And then I think a final one is just don't send money to anyone you haven't met in person. And and honestly, on that note, because I was thinking of an additional one, is we're focusing on online scams, but a huge issue is just elder abuse in person. Right. People who know the person. A lot of times it's family members. And I would say, you know, when you're older, be really careful, almost don't give your money to anyone. <laughs> yeah. One of the things we're going to is getting a trusted contact for every client. That's one of the things I'm mandating here shortly. We started to do it, and that is I think every retiree at least ought to have somebody that that the advisor is allowed to call if they suspect if something doesn't feel right. Because otherwise we're, your hands are tied legally when you think something might go on and you can't really do anything. But if you have this trusted contact, that you're, they're not allowed to do any transactions or do anything in the account. You're just allowed to reach out to them if you, you suspect something is, is a file. Yeah, Fred. No, uh, one more, really obviously, maybe these are so obvious we didn't think about them, but uh, no one's going to call you from Social Security, the, the IRS, or the Illinois Department of Revenue. So if you get a call that uh, that asserts that they're from those people, uh, that's not true. Automatically uh, click. They don't do that. So Social Security is not going to call you. The IRS is not going to call you. Uh, the county jail is not going to call you. Uh, you mentioned one other one. Uh, uh, Illinois Department of Revenue. Illinois Department of Revenue. Yeah. They're not going to reach out to you by telephone. Yeah. One other thing that you, I learned from you uh, many years ago, uh, if you're making an investment, uh, don't write it to a person. Write it to a uh, so if uh, you're So if you're yeah. looking for what Fred's talking about is when uh, – uh, the big scammer, the uh, Bernie, Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Uh, uh, the first client that brought it to my attention. This has been years ago now. Uh, said, "What do you, you know, could this happen to me?" And I said, "Well, I don't know anything about it, but I can tell you this: the only way that happens that somebody gets their money stolen from their advisor is if they're if they're what's talking about taking possession or custody of those funds themselves, and they're they're mingling, commingling the client's money with their money. Then all bets are off." So 
I've always, people, when the new clients always want to write a check to Rudy Wealth Management, I said, oh, as much as I would like that, it's not in your best interest to do that. Make sure you write that check to Charles Schwab and company. They are the actual custodian. That's where the money is. It's a little corny, but I'll say, no, your money's not in that drawer over there. Your money's at Charles Schwab. It's in your name, your tax ID number. So that's this custody issue is very important, Fred, because that's a way to really lose big bucks is if, you know, if, if it's the John Smith Investment Company and you say, well, who do I write the check out to? And you well, write it out to John Smith Investment Company. Probably ought to ring an alarm. It should be somebody outside of that, a major custodian that you know of and aware of. Could even be a local bank, but somebody outside of that person. I think that's key. Yep. What else, guys? <laughs> I would say just for other, like, helpful tips, uh, again, be very skeptical. Uh, people are out there to take your money and and. The industry is is a multi multi billion with a B billion dollar industry for scamming ad- adults and older adults. So it's something you want to look out for. And then lastly, don't be afraid to ask somebody else for an opinion. This is what so many scammers are hoping for: is that you don't ask questions, you don't talk to somebody, and they want you to take quick action. But if you take a minute to stop, think, and then reach out to someone who is a third party, a, a family member, or a close friend. Somebody just to give you a different perspective who is not part of this A and B conversation, that can have a huge impact on you making a wrong decision. It's that tap of the shoulder. I, you know, our most recent client newsletter, I reiterated, look, if anything seems, you know, anybody's coming at you for any of these reasons, please call us first before you do anything. 24-7, I don't care. Call me in the middle of the night if the grandchild is saying they're... I don't care. This is a real problem. This ransomware tends to be the biggest one. It's the most common one. And I think a lot of people don't understand what they're trying to do is get you just to click on something. And that is a link that basically allows, sets up this little program that allows them to go into your computer and basically take over. So that's why you're getting these emails is they're hoping there's something within that email that you will link on, that you will click on. And that's what sets off this little war. Go ahead, and, Ryan. And it could be something as simple as an unsubscribe link at the bottom of the email. So if you're tired of getting scam, you know, f- spam mail, mail that you're not in, wanting to have, and it says unsubscribe, the real link could actually be the, the Trojan horse, so to speak, that installs these back-end programs that spy on you or take over and ransom. The, the issue is if you suspect something, call somebody you know that's independent. It can be a family member. It can be your financial advisor. is a perfect person because they probably have some additional resources that they can get to really quickly. And I think that's the key is acting quickly before the damage is done. But I, th- this probably sounds like a scary thing, but it is a scary thing, and we're seeing it more and more. We are on high alert at Rudy Wealth Management. I mean, we are so skeptical that even some legitimate emails sometimes don't get all the way through. Uh, but you just can't be too careful yeah. here. It's one thing, you know, there's an old saying, it's harder to stay rich than it is to get rich. And this is just another layer of why it's harder to stay rich because there's a lot of people out there that want to do harm to you and steal your money. There's no question about that. Uh, Fred, well, I guess... Uh, no recession. Everything looks rosy to me. It sounds like, a, or it seems to be a, a period of uh, of uh, calm now. No, no, no big issues. The uh, uh, interest rate business is sort of settled now. And nobody's uh, really a, rattling about recession. We have a days. budget. Uh, no one's worried about too much about recession. Uh, corporate profits aren't great, but we're hanging in there. So okay. Well, thanks, Fred. Uh, thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's on the Money Radio Show. We'll be back the second Tuesday of August. Thanks for listening. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.